0: Good morning. Good morning. All right. Let's pray. God, how awesome are your deeds. Because of your great strength, your enemies cringe before you. All the earth bows down before you. Sings to you, sings out your name. Amen. All right. So when I was a kid, I was really into the Spider-Man cartoon series. Any of you familiar with it? It's okay, it's good. (laughs) I was really into it, and I did exactly what every kid does when they're really into a movie or TV show. I wanted to be exactly like the main character. Now, you might be able to guess where this is going. At one point, I was at the playground, and inspired by Spider-Man, I climbed the chain link fence that surrounded it, right? (laughs) When I was adequately high up, I leapt thinking that I could do a Spider-Man jump. Now, of course, things did not go as well for me as they tend to go for (laughs) Spider-Man. I ended up getting pretty seriously injured. It's the end of my superhero career. Um, This is a pretty common dynamic, though, isn't it? We all have stories that provide for us some exemplars or paradigms who inspire us to be like them. It doesn't really stop with childhood, does it? We aspire to be like celebrities or sports figures or musicians or whatever. But the point is this, that we all have exemplars, people and images who inspire us to imitate them, who awe us, who help us to make sense of our lives and who give us context for the kinds of actions that we should take. Now, this is normal and perfectly fine, depending, of course, on whom you choose to make an exemplar for your life. I have a friend who regularly reminds me that you can be what you can see. And this is true. It picks out the notion that seeing often leads to being. You can be what you can see, and what you see shows you how you should be, if that makes any sense. In the Christian faith, we have inherited a whole family of exemplars. We call them saints, women and men, worthy of our copycatting, are ready and available. Of course, biblical figures like St. Paul and the Virgin Mary are worthy of our emulation, too. All of these point us to Jesus, who is the focal point of our imitation. But what makes these good paradigms and images for the Christian life? What makes a good exemplar? The short answer is that the people whom we should emulate should be virtuous, people with lives whose fabric is woven with God-orientation. And in the Christian faith, such people tend to be people the world overlooks. Exemplars are to be found in children, amongst the poor, in the alcoholics' anonymous meeting, the motherless, the fatherless, the abandoned, the widow. Because the gospel reconfigures how we understand worth in this life, we look less for the Spider-Man of the world, but to the Aunt Mays, who quietly go about their lives in faithfulness and devotion. Aunt May Ray's Peter Parker. This is, it doesn't matter. Yeah, okay. She tends to die in the shows. Anyway. That didn't land. All right. This morning, <laughs> this morning I want to highlight one dominant image that Scripture regularly pour- puts forward as an exemplar for all of us to follow. One image that scripture calls all Christians to make normative of the Christian life. That image is that of a pilgrim, a pilgrim. What is the Christian life like and who are Christians? We are fundamentally pilgrims on pilgrimage. We will see what this is like in all four of our passages. I know, I know, buckle up, yeah. So the image of a pilgrim, is one we encounter regularly in Scripture. First Peter 1, seven envisions our time here on earth as foreigners, or pilgrims. A bit later, in chapter 2, verse 11, Peter says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Foreigners and exiles, or as some older translations have it, pilgrims and wanderers. My favorite depiction of the pilgrimage of the Christian life comes from Hebrews 11, where in verse 16, the author indicates that exemplary figures were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. The author says in verses 13 through 14, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised, they only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, like a pilgrim would see their destination, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth foreigners and strangers people who say such show that they are looking for a country of their own foreigners and strangers are once again pilgrims or finally we have psalm 39:12 hear my prayer o lord and give ear to my cry do not hold your peace at my tears for i am your passing guest an alien like all my forebears the mo- modern Bibles preferred to use words like guest, alien, and sojourner to convey these concepts. Older Bibles tended to opt for pilgrimage language. Aliens, exiles, passing guests, sojourners, all of these contribute to a unified understanding of the Christian life like that of a pilgrimage, specifically a pilgrimage to God. So who is a pilgrim? Such language can bear some sanctimonious connotation, something vaguely spiritual, right? We might drive by a church called sojourn and not bat an eyelid, right? But this is not how scripture and the Christian tradition envisage pilgrimage. Pilgrims are much less like tourists, but much more like immigrants and refugees, People fleeing into conditions, out of conditions of danger and into conditions of danger, confusion and scarcity. To say that we should emulate pilgrimage during this life, then, is a disquieting thing. It's to expect uncertainty, disorientation, and struggle. Primarily, it relativizes our relationship to the goods with which we are so familiar. Consider an example. Imagine you're going to a, an ideal vacation destination, as I fix my mic here. Oh boy. All right, let me ask, so this is interaction time. Does anybody have a far away vacation spot that's on the top of their vacation list? Yeah, Gil. Go for it. Santa Belle Island. Okay, say that one more time. Santa Bell Island. Santa Belle Island. Oh, okay. Okay, all right. So, you're going to vacation to Santa Belle Island, all right? You're taking a trip there, you hop on the plane. It's a long plane ride, I'm assuming. Okay. Oh, long enough. Pretend it's really long, because it helps my illustration. (laughs) So it's a long flight, all right? So you buckle in. And at first, the plane is really confining. Can we just get there already? But as the hours go by, you find yourself settling in. Wow, these are surprisingly comfortable chairs. There was a lot of room in the overhead bin for your suitcase. That never happens. My days, those Biscoff biscuits were out of this world. (laughs) You know what I'm talking about? The beverage cart comes through twice. The trash collectors don't come too quickly. There is no turbulence, and all of the movies are ones you haven't seen but have been wanting to watch. You even managed to sleep on the flight. I never can do that. So, things go so well for you on this flight that by the time you land, you refuse to get off the plane. You no longer care about getting to Sanibel Island, you just want to keep enjoying this lovely airplane. Now, such a state of affairs would be ridiculous, wouldn't it? The whole point of the plane trip was to get to the destination. Conceiving of yourself as on a voyage means that your relationship to how you get there is reconsidered. The plane is valuable, And you appreciate its value precisely because of where it takes you. Think of it like a person hiking the Appalachian Trail. You can bet that she loves her hiking boots. Imagine doing such a hike in flip-flops. But her love and appreciation are directly informed by the relationship that the boots have with the journey. Hiking boots are perfect for that kind of trip. They're useless sitting in the closet. This takes us nicely to our Jeremiah reading. Probably liked hiking. I don't know. Just just as the Israelites have gone from Jerusalem to Babylon, await return to Jerusalem, so also do we endure our time awaiting our arrival from our pilgrimage. Just as Israel is an exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, exile is a pilgrimage word, we must see ourselves as exiles during this life. But what does this require of us? How are pilgrims called to live during their pilgrimage, particularly in relation to the places in which they find themselves, even if those places are hostile? They are, says Jeremiah, to seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. In verse 7, seek the welfare and benefit the place in which you find yourself, even as you're in exile within it. In fact, we hear an echo of Genesis one twenty-two when verse six calls us to increase and multiply there, or multiply there. This is an important reminder to us as pilgrims. Wherever we find ourselves, we still find ourselves in God's creation. There is this is not enemy territory. We're not surrounded by hostile antagonism on every turn. Sometimes Christians are tempted to think this way: the world is going down. And as it goes down, it will be radically oppositional to us. So our job is to oppose it back. Jeremiah paints a rather different vision here, making such an attitude unavailable to us. We cannot view the world in this way because in its welfare, you will find your welfare, says verse 7. As pilgrims, we are called to live in pursuit of the well-being of our neighbors. Neighbor love is not an option for Christians, neither is love of enemy. You've heard it said, love your enemy, or love your neighbor but hate your enemy. But I say unto you. As exiles, we love the neighbors and enemies who surround us, knowing that they are likewise God's creatures living in God's world. And there's a theological reason for this, and it has to do with the time that we live in. This is a time of pilgrimage, a time during which the wheat is still mixed in with the weeds, as the parable of Matthew 13, 24-30 depicts. Let both of them grow together until the harvest, says Christ in verse 30 of that passage, and that is what's happening now. The harvest has not yet come, and the time of pilgrimage entails that the lives of Christians will be necessarily intermixed with that of the world. Every time the church has attempted to separate itself entirely from the world, it has been surprised to find that the world was right there waiting for it. In fact, right inside of it, the call's coming from inside the house and that it missed crucial aspects of God's work out in the world. So Jeremiah calls us to live common lives with others, knowing that for the time being, this is precisely what we must do. For the time being is crucial here, though. So I've already mentioned, knowing that the conditions of this life are temporary, like being on an airplane bringing us to our vacation, both calls us to appreciate the world in which we live and prevents us from making it the sum of our hopes. We're called to love where we are, but not with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's left only for God. This, by the way, should shape how we engage things like politics. I've been teaching a political theology class for the last year. Christians have, this is a massively important passage, by the way, in that world, but Christians have, needless to say, a complicated relationship with politics right? It being something that often compromises our witness and confession. Yet realizing that we are pilgrims in this world both calls us to see politics as an important tool for enabling us to love our neighbors well, but inherently places a limit in the role it can play in our lives. It's kind of like Gandalf. (laughs) You ready for this? You know what I'm talking about, right, the wizard? So in The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King... The city of Gondor is under a steward until its true king, Aragorn, returns. That's a spoiler. But if you haven't seen Lord of the Rings Return of the King yet, that's on you, all right? (laughs) Go watch it today. Uh, The job of the steward is to take care of Gondor and its people until the king returns. But this is not what Denethor the steward does. Instead, he seizes the power of Gondor and claims it for his own. To destructive ends. He fails to see that his rule is appropriate for the time being, but that it has a necessary expiration date. This is why Gandalf, when he sees Denethor's behavior, says, authority is not given to you to return, to deny the return of the king, steward. He says it like that. To which Denethor responds, the whole rule of Gondor is mine and no other's. Denethor forgets the role of a pilgrim. There are certain things to which we are called because we live prior to the return of Christ, in this time of mixed existence of wheat and weeds. But this relativizes the roles these things play. Denethor's authority is given to him to prepare for the return of the king, not to delay it. In the same way, Christians are called to see politics in its proper place. We need it to live common lives with others. Stop signs, stoplights, that kind of stuff. But we recognize that it has an expiration date. Right now, we are called to live as exiles in the city. Pray for it, seek its good. But there will be a day when we are exiles no longer. Here's how uh, Luke Bretherton puts it. He says this, this is a long quote, but bear with me, it's a good one. If this time is all there is, then politics has no limits as it has to bear the full weight of human meaning and possibilities. The problem that then ensues is the totalization of politics, right, which leads either to an overinvestment in political projects as programs of salvation, or idolatry, or to an underinvestment that despairs of any meaningful yet chastened political activity as being possible. By contrast, an eschatological horizon to history, eschatology is just what nerdy theologians mean by end times, right, what will happen when Christ returns. Meaning that there is a time beyond this time disqualifies any absolute claims of a political or economic system, either to shape human life or to determine the history and significance of everything and everyone. When we understand politics as situated between Christ's ascension and his return, it is freed to be about enabling a penultimate peaceableness. That, that's brotherton, that penultimate peaceableness is precisely, I think, what Jeremiah is calling us to. Politics is not meant to bear the full weight of our hopes and dreams, as it often tempts us to do. Rather, it is there to enable, enable neighbor love and peaceableness for pilgrims on their way home. Not to delay the return of the king. Our psalm, in fact, gives us a rich vision for what the duration and destination of pilgrimage looks like. It envisions a time when all lands will be joyful in God, in verse 1, assuring us that God rules forever by his power. His eyes watch the nations, all the nations, in verse 7. As we live in this mixed pilgrimage time, it does not mean that God is absent. His authority is still true, and he is still our returning king. All lands and nations will, quote, sing the glory of his name, sing the glory of his praise, says verse 1. The authority of all rulers, like Denethor's, is bestowed and borrowed, for no authority is available other than the one provided by the one true king. And every time Christians confess that Christ is king, every time we pray, your kingdom come, we're reminding ourselves and those who rule us that there is one who rules forever by his power, under whose watchful eye they rule. All the same, God tested us and brought us into prison and laid burdens on our backs, letting people ride over our heads, verses 10 and 11 say. As we live in exile awaiting the return of our king who rules forever, life remains extremely difficult. Pilgrimage, lest we forget, is hard, As Christians, we must always walk around this life with shoes that don't seem to fit quite right. Like the ones I'm wearing right now. (laughs) Pilgrimage is a time of confusion, disorientation, and burden. It's much more like the experience of a refugee today than of booking a vacation on an app. So what might sustain us in this time being? What sustains a pilgrim on their way? Consider Paul's hardship. I suffer hardship, he says, even to the point of being chained like a criminal, says our Second Timothy passage in verse 9. Spoken like a true pilgrim. Why does Paul live like this? He says, this is my gospel for which I am suffering. I endure everything for the sake of the elect, he says. Paul endures his pilgrimage because he knows that Christ Jesus, raised from the dead, has made the way possible has made the burden light, has made the destination joyful. As Augustine says, now all of you pull out your bingo cards, as mentions Augustine, as Augustine says, Christ has made himself the pavement under our feet along which we could return home. Christ himself has made the pavement under our feet along which we return home. Paul, because of the work and path of Christ, I am the way, the truth, and the life, is able to undertake his pilgrimage because of Christ. We are so united to Christ, as verses 11 through 13 depict, that we are able to journey on our way home, for he is the way home. More specifically, I see Paul calling us to do two things as pilgrims. Remember and endure. Remember and endure. Remember Jesus Christ, he says. Keep reminding God's people of these things, verse 14. Pilgrims need to remember their destination to remain motivated for the journey. We must remember that the path on which we walk is Christ, and Christ leads us to a full life with God. Secondly, we are, in verse 10, we're called to endure. That for which we journey on our pilgrimage makes enduring all things worthwhile. For in arriving in our destination, our wounds will be bandaged, our tears will be wiped away, our hearts will be restored. Like that, per, that's, that song was perfect today. I thought the uh, sovereign over us is perfect depiction of that. Or in the Jeremiah passage, you know that just after the bit that we have read for today is that famous passage. I know the plans that I have for you, right? You you probably saw it in somebody's kitchen at some point, right? We have one in one of our bathrooms. <laughs> it's like a calligraphy, yeah. That's a beautiful picture of the destination of pilgrimage, right? That for which we journey makes it all worthwhile. We endure the fire and the flood, the heavy burden, knowing that this is precisely what this time prior to our arrival is meant to be like. Yet the one who rules all things will sustain us. So when we finally turn to Luke 17, we encounter Christ on the way to Jerusalem. Now, this is where the Israelites were exiled from, from Jerusalem to Babylon, and Christ is returning to Jerusalem. He goes to Jerusalem in order to perform an act that will bring us home. We were taken out of Jerusalem, out of our home, but Christ, in returning to Jerusalem, will bring us home. If we have died with him in Jerusalem, we will also live with him, reigning with him there. So Christ is on the way to Jerusalem to a cross that will open the door for the path home. Yet who is able to come with him on this journey? Ten lepers approach. And in the eyes of the powerful, they would be the least likely candidates. You all know about leprosy, right? They ask, maybe you don't. They like, people don't like lepers, all right? They ask for mercy. And through that, we see that the beginning of our pilgrimage must begin with God's mercy to us. Yet one of them turns back, praising God in a loud voice, throwing himself at Jesus' feet. This was a Samaritan. And if being a leper wasn't bad enough, Luke surprises us with this fact. he is also a Samaritan. All the same, this foreigner, says the the passage, this pilgrim, foreigner, pilgrim language, is faithful. So here is your exemplar. An outcast, a pilgrim, someone who is likely poor, Needing cleansing, needing mercy. We look to him for our example. We can't even look to the other nine lepers. They did not display what is necessary of an exemplar. Instead, we are given this leper to emulate, to raise up as an example. And why? Because he knew he needed mercy. He responded with gratitude. He displayed faith. He came to Christ knowing that nothing but the grace of Christ would justify such a bold act. And this is what we are called to do as well. We are on pilgrimage walking by faith. Our relationship to this world will be neither one of full separation or full acceptance, but for the time being, we seek to love neighbor, enemy, and self. And sometimes your closest neighbor, your closest enemy is yourself. Augustine, preaching on similar themes, says this, Anyone who is still on pilgrimage, walking by faith, has not yet reached home, but is already on the way to it. Let us walk, then, like people who know they are on the way, because the king, the king of our homeland, has made himself our way. The king is the Lord Jesus Christ. There at home, he is our truth, but here he is our way. To what are we traveling? To the truth how shall we get there? Through faith. Whither are we traveling? To Christ. How shall we reach him? Through Christ. So we are a pilgrim people making our way together through thick and thin to God. We need each other. This is no fall behind, get left behind operation. Rather, as the body of Christ, we know we are going home. So I thought I'd end with a prayer from the Book of Common Prayer. This is a prayer of commemoration. It's on page 640 of the ACNA Book of Common Prayer, if you want to look it up later. But I'll end with prayer. Almighty God, by your Holy Spirit, you have made us one with your saints in heaven and on earth. Grant that in our earthly pilgrimage, we may always be supported by this fellowship of love and prayer and know ourselves to be surrounded by their witness to your power and mercy for the sake of Jesus Christ in whom all our intercessions are acceptable through the Spirit and who lives and reigns with you and the same Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen.